We are in uh, our second to last passage in the book of James, starting in verse 7 of chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Pray that the the living power of the word of God would not go around us as if we were deaf and dumb, but would instead penetrate our hearts, that we would hear your word. We'd pay attention. We pray, God, that our hearts would be settled in your hand. You would make us a patient people who trust you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I am not entirely comfortable preaching a sermon that heavily focuses on patience. It is not a natural mark of my character. Most people who know me know that. My family who know me best know this best about me that I am an impatient person, and I'm not going to stand up here and speak as a hypocrite and say, let me tell you how to nail down this patience thing, because that's not me. And this particular kind of patience goes beyond my own inability to manage driving a car without wanting to kill someone. This is a a deeper kind of patience that James is calling his people to. James is calling for patience from people who are in the midst of suffering and who likely will continue to suffer. Because remember, they are in economically depressed times. There is famine in the region. Their suffering is, is close at hand because of that. And there's every chance, every likelihood that they will face suffering from the culture that they, that they live in. As predominantly Jewish Christians, they face the very real possibility of, of being kicked out of their community, of having no access to community life. And they face every chance of, from Roman culture being excluded, if not killed, for their refusal to participate in Roman worship. So these are a people with lots of pressures on them, and James's word to them is to be patient. 
that they are to, to face this kind of circumstance. They are supposed to face the grind, the pressurized circumstances that they're in with a particular kind of patience that hinges on trust. Their patience is born out of trust that God is going to do something about the world that they live in. James doesn't say, uh, guys, this isn't so bad. He, he doesn't try to mitigate their suffering. He doesn't try to explain it away or pretend that it doesn't exist, which is unfortunately the way that many religious people, Christian people, often try to deal with other people's suffering is to tell them, like, basically, buck up, one day things will be better with no real acknowledgement of people's grief and actual suffering. There's every chance when you know somebody who is suffering to throw these sort of religious platitudes at people and, and just say basically to escape the discomfort of somebody else's suffering like, oh, you know, God would never give you more than you could handle or something stupid like that. James doesn't do that. He doesn't say you're not really suffering. He names it what it is. Suffer, but suffer with patience. And the, the truth is that merely by being alive and being human, you will experience suffering of various kinds. Now, some of us are extremely fortunate to up maybe thus far or maybe for a long period of time to to not really suffer that much your circumstances are great and it, it can be tempting even then to to just assume that this is will this will be how life is from here into the future and the truth is it it probably won't it almost certainly won't because people that you love will die. You will get sick. Your body will decay. You will suffer in your body. And most people take, taking away even some sickness and death experience some degree of suffering just because of the inherent loneliness of being a person. There is a hiddenness in your being that you cannot resolve. Married people know this. Plenty of people have gotten married and say, I will never be lonely again. And spoiler alert, this is free premarital counseling. You'll still be lonely. No matter how deeply you are known and intimately you are known by another person, they still cannot sort of crack open your being and get inside next to you and see exactly what it is like to be you. In some ways, married people become more lonely at the realization of this disappointment. But, but single people in and of themselves, they're not better off. You're not spared anything by, by me being married. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying this is not a, a cure. There's no cure out there. That everybody will, even if all your circumstances are right, just being alive and being conscious carries with it a degree of suffering. And of course, if we look outside of ourselves, 
the world has all kinds of indicators that suffering seems to be in the fabric of things. It's hard not to see the news every week and to see more reason to believe this. And it's, it's really, I, I didn't plan this. It's appropriate that we are talking about this as we are, we are on the precipice of the season of Advent. Because the season of Advent that's, that's coming up in the church is not just a countdown to Christmas. It's not uh, uh, an increasing joy that Christmas is around the corner. Actually, the season of Advent in the church is meant to be a longing for the coming of Christ, for His second coming. Not like, when do we get to plug in the lights on the Christmas tree? I can't wait for that. But to look at the world as it is and to be filled with, with mourning, filled with hope that Jesus would come and He would set things right. And that kind of longing is what is underneath what James is talking about here. And he uses these words of patience and endurance that you could keep on going. This is what you're called to. Knowing that Jesus is in some sense standing at the door ready to bring judgment on a world that needs to be judged. Your, your hope, your, your ability to endure, to keep going, your ability to have patience in the middle of that endurance is supposed to be hinged on the belief, the trust, that God will surely not leave the world like this. Well, a, a, a tragic and often missed consequence of the world being the way that it is right now is that you and I can be lulled into believing this is the way that things are. This is the way things are meant to be. And this is the way things will always be. And that is a kind of hopeless disposition that is at odds with the God of the Bible. You are actually meant to be profoundly uncomfortable in your suffering and to perpetually be reminding yourself, this is not the way it was meant to be. This is not the way it was meant to be. It will not be this way forever. And the hope, the resolution, is that one day God will come and judge the world. Now, when we talk about God coming to judge the world, people hear that in the context of church, and they're expecting the fire and brimstone sermon. They're expecting the finger wag, the shouting, the sweating. God is coming to judge you because basically he hates you or something like that. that. That's kind of the way that we read this message of judgment. And in some ways, there's reason to believe that. Judgment is a major theme of the Bible. It's, it's hugely important. And it makes people uncomfortable, this idea of judgment. So what they'll do is they, they'll set it aside and say, well, God isn't really like that. The Bible, the Old Te that's Old Testament thing. I'm New Testament team Jesus. Like Jesus is not judging. So I don't have to worry about this idea of judging. It makes me uncomfortable. God's not that angry uh, with me. So let's just 
set judgment over here and forget about that. That was for those old Bronze Age people. Uh, we're in a you know enlightened time. We don't need a God who judges. Well, first of all, judgment is an intrinsic hope of Israel. You can't read the Old Testament. You can't read the Psalms without repeatedly running into this pleading for judgment. And of course, what Israel means is, come judge those other people. They're terrible. And Israel has reason to be praying these kind of prayers, and the prophets have reasons to be giving these kinds of messages, because guess what? Israel was an oppressed people. People were coming in from all sides, and they wanted to kill Israel. They wanted to overturn Israel. And the prophets start coming to Israel and telling them that this thing was coming, the day of the Lord. This phrase keeps coming out, the day of the Lord. And we're going to hear that a lot in Advent, this phrase, the day of the Lord is coming. And so you have, uh, I'm just going to give you one example. This is the book of Obadiah. Now, I don't know how much time you spend with Obadiah. It's one chapter. You may be saying, I didn't know there was a book of Obadiah. Yeah, you probably just turned right past it. The pages stuck together, and boom, you missed Obadiah. But that's it. Obadiah is a prophet, though. Make sure you don't miss his page. There's one, just one of them, maybe part of another. But this little book of Obadiah is about pronouncing judgment on Edom, this other people, Edomites, who lived just outside of Israel, who were distantly related to Israel through Esau. And they're laughing at Israel who's in trouble. And Obadiah is coming to say, hey, Edom, you're going to get yours. God sees you laughing, and one day you will not laugh anymore. So this is what it sounds like. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau is stubble. They'll burn them and consume them, and there will be no survivor for the house of Israel, for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. That's kind of what the day of the Lord sounds like. It is, it is a moment that is promised when Israel is told, God will answer for all of those things that you thought he was ignoring. And those people will be judged. And you and I need to read Obadiah and all of the many Psalms that pray in that kind of vein. Because you and I need the language of pleading with God to come and fix a world that has stuff like cancer and wildfires and dictators and genocide. What you and I need is the language of the day of the Lord that we would be encouraged to trust that God 
actually will pay attention and do something about all these things that are plaguing and destroying the world. If you don't have a God who judges, then it is all on you. So you better fix the world. And let me just tell you, thus far, that plan is not working out. And so you have two two possibilities at this juncture. We better be smarter. We better figure it out. That's one. This is the way the world is. And this is the way it will be forever. Now, maybe you believe that after 2,000 plus years of most recent history, maybe much longer than that, 10, 12 plus thousand years of recorded human history, maybe you feel like, hey, maybe we're finally making improvements. It doesn't really seem like that. Maybe you're saying, well, next millennium, we'll get them. I'm doubtful. And yet there's also something inside of me that says, this can't be the way that it was meant to be. Surely there must be another future at hand for us. Now the uncomfortable thing about this day of the Lord, this idea that that Jesus is sort of leaning on the door of history waiting to bust in and set things right, the uncomfortable thing that Israel heard and that we too have to hear when we read the prophets is that the prophets started to say, here's the thing. The day of the Lord is for them over there and it is for you too. That all the enemies of God will be judged and there's some bad news. You yourself are on the wrong side. The day of the Lord is coming, and it is coming for you too. What then do we plead for? Do we plead for the judge to come and set things right, or do we not? We are caught in two minds. And actually, this is the tension where the Old Testament ends. What do we do? It seems, quite literally, we are, we are damned if we do and damned if we don't. So what happens now? And, and this tension is in, it's in the water, it's in the atmosphere of Israel when Jesus comes into the world. It is in the air that He is breathing that Israel is occupied by enemies whom they want to be judged. They themselves have already experienced a taste of judgment as the people have gone into exile and come back. But the story dramatically shifts in unexpected ways that enables James to talk like this. Because Jesus' friends, shortly after he leaves the story, will give this surprising news. The day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord that we look forward to to deal with all those other people, 
the day of the Lord that we were scared of because how it might fall on our heads, the day of the Lord unexpectedly has come. And what they'll say is, and Peter says this in Acts 2 in, in the first sermon of the early church, he'll quote these day of the Lord prophecies from the book of Joel. And what he'll say is, when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, the day of the Lord came in full force and it fell on the Son of God. The judgment of God that is meant to come into the world to set everything right, it has done what nobody expected. And it has fallen on the enemies of the people of God. And it has fallen on the people of God themselves. And it has done both things at once in the cross of Jesus. The greatest enemies that you will face in your life, the suffering that you will endure, they are all tied up in the powers of sin and death. And instead of allowing you and I to believe that, that all of our enemies that need to be judged, that they're in the Edomites over there, the Babylonians over there, the Romans over there, all those other people that we don't like over there, instead what Jesus clarifies and points to is that actually the ultimate enemies of the people of God are sin and death, and those are the enemies that God is coming to judge and to crush. And all the ways that we have entangled ourselves in those powers voluntarily from our own fractured hearts, Jesus stands and judges for us and is judged on our behalf so that the powers of sin and death that are out there and in here, they are crushed. So now James, the brother of Jesus, is looking back to the God who has himself suffered and died. And he says to the people of God, be patient, trust Him. You have seen the down payment of God's justice and judgment in the cross. And He will not fail to complete what He's begun. The cross is before you as the, the center of Christian hope. That you and I can endure the suffering that is inherent in being alive and being human and being in this fractured world. Because the God who suffers with us and on our behalf has already ushered in the judgment that we so desperately long for. So James says, suffer patiently. This will one day not be like this. And then he says these things about the nature of Christian community that at first glance seems like, well, James kind of feels like you're dealing with really serious issues. Now you're going to jump to grumbling and complaining about people. It seems, I mean, there's kind of a disconnect there, like wildfires, sin, death, cancer, grumbling. Seems a mismatch. But what James is, is saying here is that we as the people of God, the, the cross-shaped people of God, the people whose hopes are defined by the cross, we are together knit into one people. 
We are, we are enduring in the end, to the end, together. The people who you are in this stressful, pressurized context with, these, these are your family members, your mates, your partners, your friends, and arm in arm together, we are waiting and enduring. And oftentimes, the only way that you will be able to endure and learn patience is your friends and the family of God will sort of carry you the next step or two. And so it is no small deal if the pressures and the forcefulness of sin help you, encourage you, push you to start backbiting and grumbling and bad-mouthing the people of God around you. Now again, this is not James saying, look, everybody's fine, everybody is perfect, angelic, nobody will ever hurt anybody. Absolutely not. You just have to read the book of James to see that James doesn't believe that. But what he's saying is, we are defined by our togetherness with Jesus. Don't let the pressure of suffering and sin fracture you and get in the middle of what is supposed to be a piece of your inheritance and the means of enduring. So yeah, you are under stress as you suffer. We are under stress. And guess what? Stressed out people get annoyed with each other. It just happens. My wife has traveled with me. I do not do well when we miss flights and mismanage airport trips. I don't like that. And guess what happens when I get to be like that? I'm a jerk. This is like the, the lowest rung of suffering is missing a flight. Although in the middle of missing a flight in Chicago, it feels like the bottom of hell. But it is the lowest rung of suffering. If we are in the middle of actual suffering, and we're just actually dealing with the day-to-day -day grind of sin in each other's life and depression and loneliness and sin and death, of course you are going to get mad at each other. And what James is saying is, do not just split ways. Do not let the grind of sin and suffering pull you apart. Because that too is not the way the world was meant to be. And that too will be judged. This is not the way, not only is the world not the way it will always be, but that thing itself is a thing that God will extract from the world because His people were not meant to be that way. And he says this thing about, about truth-telling, about swearing oaths. He's, he's quoting Jesus here. James does this a lot in his, in his sermon. He's so in the words of his brother that he doesn't even cite Jesus. He just kind of throws this down. Verse 12 is, is almost a direct quote from, from James' teaching, I mean, Jesus' teaching from the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, this weird thing, just kind of a verse by itself, uh, don't swear oaths. And, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, you should know that actually oath swearing, there's like a guide for it in the Old Testament. It's an inherent part of being in this culture is swearing oaths. And Jesus kind of intensifies the law and says just don't swear oaths. You don't need to, you shouldn't need to let your yes, yes be your yes or your no be your no. And James pulls this teaching. And he says the people of God not only are meant to speak to each other in a certain way, but speak 
about the truth in a certain way. Ben Witherington writes, this truly countercultural approach to truth-telling reminds us that oath-taking is for those with a credi- credibility gap that no Christian should have. This countercultural wisdom is especially striking in a largely oral culture where there are not reams of written documents to call persons to account. But the Jesus movement was to be so strongly grounded in trust and truth that oath-taking would become osios and obsolete, even in an oral culture. Osios uh, means irrelevant. I had to look that up. I didn't know that word. The Jesus movement is supposed to be so grounded in trust and truth-telling that oath-taking becomes irrelevant. And what, what does all of this have to do with but trust? Suffering and dealing with one another, family members who annoy the bejeebus out of you, oath-telling. All of this is James telling us you must trust Jesus. You must trust Him. When it is deeply difficult, He's not saying like when everything is grand. He's saying in the grind, in the darkness of normal everyday life, the God who suffered with you and for you on your behalf, you can trust Him. And you should be trustworthy people who are shaped and modeled in His likeness. Jesus is trustworthy. If you're you're in the middle of suffering right now, that may be incredibly hard to believe. You You may have to pry your fingers off the steering wheel of your life with incredible pain, with agony, so that you might trust Jesus. But He is the crucified and resurrected Lord who has brought the day of the Lord on all that plagues you and for you on your behalf. And you may be sitting near people who have done you wrong. We don't have to pretend that you haven't been done wrong. You have been done wrong. And the temptation is to be, to to lob rocks at the people who have wronged you in the family of God. And there's absolutely space for accountability, for repentance between one another. This should be an open, transparent place where you and I speak to one another of sin and, and, and wounding each other. But you must then set your rocks down and trust that Jesus, who is both judge and the former of the community, He will deal rightly with this person who has wronged you, and He will heal you of what has been done to you. And you should be the kind of person that speaks as if that is who God is. There should not be a gap in your credibility that your and my life should be lived in front of one another well enough that you should know that when I say to you, I will do this or I will do that, my yes is yes and my no is no. 
there's authenticity and integrity because I trust Jesus. This morning, James is calling us, the people of God, to trust Jesus. And the cross is in front of you to remind you that He is trustworthy, that He is good, that the world, though not good, will one day be good, that He is standing on the precipice of heaven, waiting and ready to redeem a world that has fallen far from what it should be. He is present with us by His Holy Spirit, putting you and I in fellowship and community with one another to speak words of life to one another, to be a truth-telling people modeled after Him. Jesus is in front of you this morning. Trust Him. And if you are having a hard time trusting Jesus this morning, I would tell you this. Go to God and say, I want to trust you. I cannot trust you. And you will find that Jesus is incredibly patient and kind to people like you. You see it in Scripture. You see it in the Gospels. I've seen it in my life. If you will go to God and say, I want to believe, I cannot believe, I want to trust, I don't know if I can trust, Jesus will do business with you today and forever to prove to you and show to you that He is Himself trustworthy and you should trust Him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you that the world is not going to be the way it is forever, that, that all those things that are out there, sin and death, disease, destruction, the horrible sin in the world that we see, it's not going to be like that forever. You did not make it to be that way, and you will not let it stay this way. And we can look at our own community. We can look at our own lives and relationship with other Christians. And we can say that one day it'll be better than this. There won't be this need to grumble and throw rocks at each other or to, to try to shade or nuance the truth and not be entirely representative of, of what the truth is. One day it won't be that way. God, we pray that this morning you would stir up our longings, that you would make us expectant and hungry that you would make us a people, an Advent people, who are longing for the second coming of Jesus to come and set the world right. In the meantime, we pray, God, that you would give us a vision of your cross. We pray that we would see the cross where you suffered for us, that we would see the empty tomb where you trampled over all of our enemies, and that you would help us to trust you. You are the trustworthy God. Some of us have never trusted you. I pray, God, that you would grab those people and you would pull them to yourself. Some of us are, are having difficulty trusting you because of the suffering that we're in the midst of. And I pray, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, whisper to them and reassure them that you are still who you've always been. And God, I pray that you would help all of us to constantly be turning our eyes back to Jesus to trust that the day of the Lord has come and is coming. 
that you will do good to us and to make this world good entirely from the top down as it was meant to be. We thank you for your faithfulness, Jesus. Help us to be faithful people.